I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, the verses starting at verse 10. Galatians 3, starting at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So our text is those last verses, 26 onwards. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. Hopefully, you've been able to make some time this past week for self-examination and reflection. As part of that reflection, it's worth examining our own attitudes to the Lord's Supper itself. Is this really a celebration for you? Did you really want to come? Or did you just come because those are the rules? If you're coming this morning because you think those are the rules, you're not coming out of faith. Then you're being motivated by law, so to speak. Now these past three chapters of Galatians, in these past three chapters, the Apostle Paul has spent a lot of time explaining that we don't live out of the law. The law is like a guardian It watches every move and condemns you if you fail. But in our passage, Paul explains that since Christ came, we are no longer under that guardian. It no longer serves as a guardian. We don't live by rules. We live by faith. Now, the rules are very important. The rules give shape and direction to that faith. But the main thing about faith is faith. In our text, he goes and talks about the other sacrament that we have, baptism. And he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism, in some ways, illustrates the same reality as the Lord's Supper. Baptism says that you are polluted by sin and that you need cleansing through the blood and spirit of Christ. The Lord's Supper repeats that same message but it also encourages you to continue in Christ. In other words, through faith, you receive what your baptism depicts. That faith is then strengthened through the Lord's Supper. Your baptism that lies behind you and the Lord's Supper that lies in front of you are calling out to each other. Baptism says you are a sinner and need cleansing from sin. Believe this and be raised to a new life. The Lord's Supper says... You have been raised and need encouragement to fight sin. Receive this and be strengthened for your new life. So the common thread holding both of these sacraments together is faith. So as we go to the table this morning, we go as those who have received what baptism depicts. We go as those who are beloved sons and daughters in Christ. We go as those united in Christ. We go in faith. Through faith you receive what your baptism depicts, and we'll pay attention to two points. Therefore, you are sons through Christ. Therefore, you are united in Christ. Now, last week we ended our, our text at verse 25, and maybe it felt like we stopped in the middle of a sentence. Now, you may see different punctuation in verse 25, depending on which Bible translation you use. Some translations put in a, a period at the end of verse 25, and, and others, like the ESV, which we are using, puts in a comma. But the original manuscripts have no punctuation at all. So the decision where to put the punctuation in the end depends on the translators. And with that in mind, we've decided to treat verse 26 separately, since this verse is really key to the whole letter. It's not an afterthought. 
This is the main point that Paul has been making all along. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And he's been hammering this home for three chapters now. Faith is where it's at. Faith is central. God's promises can be represented in baptism when we're still infants, but as we grow up, we need to respond in faith. Faith is central, not the law. And baptism depicts the reality that you have through faith. This is true for whether you were baptized as an adult, which most of his readers would have been, or as an infant. Now, you might not remember your baptism, but you know you were baptized. Do you believe what your baptism depicts? Do you believe that you need cleansing through the blood of Christ and that you are renewed through the Spirit of Christ? Do you believe that, dear brothers and sisters? That act of faith is what he means by putting on Christ. This idea of putting on Christ is one of complete and total identification. And it doesn't start with us. Christ identified himself with us in our baptism. We are united in him. We are all wearing the same robe, so to speak. And so when God looks at us, he sees us clothed with Christ's reputation and Christ's merits, his behavior. But then, as we grow in faith, we in turn act accordingly. And that part is reflected in a very similar text from Romans 13, verse 14, where he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, now that you have been identified with Christ, you are to act accordingly. Colossians 3 verse 10 makes a similar point when it says that you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So there's an active and a passive component to that. As there's an active and a passive component to faith, really. On the one hand, you are being renewed, that is passive. On the other hand, because you are being renewed, you are empowered to live accordingly. And that obligation to, to live accordingly is is your obligation. This is active. And the Lord's Supper is here to encourage you in that journey. The Lord's Supper is here to strengthen us in our faith so that we can receive what our baptism depicts. You are all sons of God through that faith, says Paul. Now, maybe you're a woman sitting here this morning and you're wondering, how does this apply to me? You're all sons of God through faith. What about the daughters? Well, there are actually many places, not all places, but many places where the word sons can include daughters as well. And a part of that is grammatical. This is simply how the language works. In Greek, the masculine pronoun can designate an entire group, including women. And um, the French language does the same thing. It's simply a function of how grammar works in this language. But... There is an even more encouraging point here. Women generally did not inherit anything in Bible times unless their father had no sons. Generally speaking, they did not inherit. But sons did. So if you're the son, you are guaranteed an inheritance. And Paul is taking this image, this image of... of, um, this guaranteedness, so to speak, and he's applying it to all who share in the same faith. He's saying, you are all sons 
Spiritually speaking, you are all sons with all of the guarantees that that represents. You are all sons in Christ. So by, by specifically saying you are all sons, he's not just making a grammatical point, but a theological point. He's establishing certainty. He's saying we are all sons through Christ. He is the Son with a capital S. And we are all sons. We are all heirs. We all share in him. Through faith you receive the inheritance that your baptism depicts. Therefore you are sons through Christ. Therefore you are also united in Christ. And that is our second point. Because if we are all sons, so to speak, of God through faith, well then we all belong together. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one. It cuts across all divisions. Through faith, we are all heirs, we are all children, we are all baptized into the community of faith. And because of that very reason, because we are all united in faith, because we all share the same faith, On the same baptism, there can be no more divisions among us. Paul lists three pairs of divisions in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you consider these divisions, these really are the three, these represent the three main categories, the three main divisions in life. Divisions on the basis of ethnic differences, social influence, and gender. There were profound social and cultural differences between people in each of these categories back then, as there still are now today. And Paul is saying here that the power of the gospel, the unity that we have in baptism, in faith, surpasses all of those divisions. He's not saying that the categories stop existing altogether, but the gospel changes how you look at these categories. People stop using that to evaluate each other, to rank each other. They don't assign merit to these things anymore. Instead, they start looking at each other as fellow believers united in Christ first, so that when you you look at someone else in church who don't first consider their skin color or their economic background or their gender, but what you first consider is the fact that this person is united to me in faith, in baptism. That's what defines you. There's a very relevant application that we can make here. If the gospel is able to transcend all of these divisions, if the gospel is able to unite us all in Christ, then surely any division that may still exist in our midst should be submitted to the gospel as well. In light of the gospel, it would be completely inappropriate for us to still maintain divisions or conflict among congregation members, whether in our midst or between members in other churches. Church unity is a precious thing. Christ died for that. So we need to guard that. So if the unity between believers was broken because of you, you should not come to the table today. The only legitimate disunity is that created by church discipline when unrepentant sinners are barred from the table. Beyond that, there should be no disunity. Now, 
we might be quick to blame others and to say the problem rests with them and you haven't heard the whole story, whole story and so on. That's not the point. The point is, do you mourn the disunity that has been created? And if you do, have you done all, if you do mourn that and if you have done all that you could to overcome it, only then have you lived up to your responsibility. We're saved through faith. We are identified with Christ. What better way to show this faith and this unity than to come here to this table? Do you want to come? Is that what you're looking forward to? Through faith you receive what your baptism depicts. But through the Lord's Supper you are strengthened. So come in faith, for you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen.